This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Interest rates are higher. I know people don't like that, but you should be welcoming a stronger economy. And maybe a deal has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. The United States is a country that has always paid all of its bills. Lannister always pays his debts. Don't let the bastards get you. And welcome to Comedian versus Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam and we're joined as always by my little older brother and real life economist, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Yeah, good day, Adam. How are you going? Doing very well, thank you. Uh, massive show coming up, as always. Oh, man. We, what? I was hoping it'd be a quiet one. <laughs> <laughs> it's always massive. Too bad, Thomas. Massive. <laughs> As always, <laughs> it's always massive. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> massive show coming up, Thomas. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, mm. We'll see how everyone's feeling about the debt ceiling. Are we dealing or about to be reeling? And there's a new craze in town. More and more people are starting to work from work. Will it catch on? <laughs> what can history teach us about this new concept of office work, as it's being called. And based on the response to last week's episode, we asked the question, is Thomas a socialist or is he just Lenin a bit far to the left? But first, Thomas, Jim tried to charm us with what he calls his bougie de federal. Thomas, (laughs) were you suitably enamoured? Bougie de federal. Oh, dear, that's good. Uh, the federal budget. The federal, federal budget. budget. Yeah, yeah. So we've had, a, we've had a week to digest it. Mm. I mean, all in all, like, you know, fairly, I think it's fairly, fairly well received. I think it's probably the guide is, did, did pretty well. I mean, definitely well received on the sort of by the, by the economics community mm. and by the sort of business community. Um, there's people there who would have liked more spending for more things, but that didn't happen. And, and I think we're like delivering a surplus this year, um, banking 82% of the revenue increases that that is that, that Chalmers has got. Mm. That's seen as um, you know a strong a strong start. And and I think like like I think you do need to see it in like a political lens. Labor is typically attacked for being you know big spending and a bit loose with the budget. So delivering the first surplus in 15 years or whatever it was, mm. good result. Um, kind of nicks that sort of line of attack in the bud. Can they take um, credit for that? I mean, or did did they take a lot of credit for that? Well, they are taking credit for that. Right. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, they are, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and kind of the point the point Chalmers was making is like we've had this big revenue windfall, like mm. commodity prices and lower unemployments uh, helped the bottom line, um, and that and that's more than was expected in the budget forecasts. 
Um, but of that revenue windfall, we've we've hung on to 82% of it. So that's us. We could have mm. spent it all, but we didn't, even though a lot of people are asking us to, to do that, we, we've hung on to it. And that shows fiscal restraint as, mm. the, as the term goes. Mm. So a lot of people saying this was an inflationary budget. Well, that's what yeah. I heard. That's my mail. <laughs> Is it? Uh, no, well, no, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, this is this is the coalition's line of attack that it's it's spending into an inflationary setting, so that's going to add fuel to the fire and drive inflation higher. It's kind of hard to sort of track it exactly. So Chris Richardson, I think, is at Deloitte now. He, his rule of thumb is that in every six billion dollars of extra spending mm. equates to twenty five basis points, so a rate hike. So like saying like if, if the RBA is trying to slow every $6 billion that the government adds, the RBA needs to take away another 25 basis points. Sorry, when you say the RBA needs to take away, you mean like reduce mm. the rate by 25? Oh, no, no, hike rates Not by hike 25. It, right, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, because to slow the economy, to balance that out. So that $6 billion is increasing economic activity, so you need a rate hike to take away. Is that their model that they've been working on? Is that like the, so have we been looking at that the past 10 rate hikes we've had of 25 basis points? Is that been in a response to roughly that, like a sort of 6 billion increased? I, yeah, I, I haven't seen that rule of thumb before. It's no. an interesting one. It's probably contested, like I don't yeah, know sure. everyone would agree on that. But yeah, that's sort of the, the vibe that if you're increasing spending, mm. then you need to balance it out with rate hikes. Yeah, where that extra spending is, John Kehoe at the AFR reckons it's $12 billion. I've seen other estimates of $20 billion. So it's sort of adding to the case for some rate hikes, possibly maybe mm. half a percentage point, but it's not, not going to be massive. It's probably not going to shift um, the RBA's thinking too much. Joe Masters is the economist at Baron Joey, and she reckons all up it's going to add 0.1 percentage points to inflation, so right. effectively nothing. And Bill mm. Evans at Westpac is sort of saying the same. So not re- there's not really a case there to say it's inflationary. At the margin it is, but not probably not going to move the needle in a meaningful way. You mentioned some people say it's going to be like $6 billion, some people say $20 billion. Isn't that the point of the budget that we know how much we're going to be spending on things? Yeah. Like if, but- if I did that at home and I was like... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this month, groceries will cost either twenty dollars, a hundred dollars, or a thousand dollars. So we just mm. need a budget for that. I think, yeah. you know, Anna would rightly <laughs> take over the budget. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, there, there are sort of off-budget things. So the, the thing that that so that that twelve that John Keo is saying, others saying twenty. That's what the, through the government's choices, not through. But a lot of the spending is locked in. Right. Because a lot of government programs are just locked in and, and they're there, so it's trying to like, is trying to like going if if the government didn't make any active decisions this budget, mm. how much extra would they be adding to the economy? Right. So, so there's a bit of guesswork in that sort of knowing, you know, identifying what's business as usual and what's an active choice, and then there's also sort of off budget things which some people sort of like to include and some people don't like, you know, like the, mm, the 10 billion for the new, yeah, yeah. Well, the 10 <laughs> for nuclear subs, for example, that's not in the budget. That's sort of just an off budget measure. Why? What, what does that mean? I don't, I don't <laughs> we, know. Should, we should really get that in the budget. If we, <laughs> again, Hey Anna, don't forget, we're going to need 10 billion for subs this week. <laughs> But don't worry, it's off budget. It's not. It's not. It's going to come out of a different bucket. Um, 
Right. So, pro- so presumably no in- no impact on interest rates then fro- as a direct result. You don't think? I mean, no. my, I'm sticking with my prediction, by the way, of of 25 basis points next next uh, meeting or next mm-hmm. next decision time, based on nothing, just because mm-hmm. it's as good as anything any other prediction. But you don't reckon there's any the budget won't change the needle. No, no, not on that, not on that measure. I don't think. Okay. The one thing I thought was interesting was there's like just in terms of the housing crisis, there's an extra thirty-one dollars a fortnight in rental assistance to lower, so people, people on on welfare payments get an extra thirty-one dollars a fortnight. Mm. Uh, that's no way that's keeping up with what's happening to rents. I think it was interesting. I just wanted to point out like that's a that's a demand side measure, and this is often the federal government's response to the housing crisis is to add money to the demand side. So give people money for first homeowner grants so they can purchase or add rental assistance so they can rent. But in a really tight market, like the rental market is right now, it's crazy tight. If you add to the demand side, if you just put more money in people's pockets, that just gets competed away and it's just going to end up in the pockets of landlords. Right. Does that make sense? So like, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone, you know, everyone sort of, welfare people are competing probably with other welfare people for the kinds of housing, you know, that in that sec- segment of the market, they're competing with each other. It's already super tight. So they're, they're already paying the most that they can pay because that's what happens in a, in a competitive market. And then you give them all $31. And then when they go to change houses, they can now pay $31 more. And so they do pay $31 more and the, that, that competes the price up. So demand side measures like that in a tight market, just push up prices. If the market was loose, it's another story. But in a tight market, it just pushes up rents. Right. So I guess the better solution then would just be to give some of the people thirty-one dollars, because that wouldn't push up. Then, then not everyone has <laughs> the money. <laughs> and right. Correct. Winners and losers. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of lottery system. Gradually bring yeah. everyone up bit by bit, but not everyone at the same time, because that would. Uh, nah. No. No, 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 no. Like in a, in a, in a competitive market, anything <laughs> on the demand side just, just pushes right. up prices. Yeah. So what do we do? Build houses instead? Yeah, you've got you to look at the supply side. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You've got to look at like well, demand is a function of the number of people and the money they're able to pay mm. and supply is the number of houses available. So, yeah, yeah. You've right. you got to look at the demand. Yeah, supply, that supply-demand balance. Changing what people are able to pay doesn't help. Was there anything in the budget for addressing the supply side no nothing meaningful hmm. no they're still, they're still trying to get up their 10 billion dollar social housing fund but right uh, that's stuck in the senate i think at the moment and it's delayed because they spent money giving it to on rental assistance so they got to wait <laughs> <laughs> all right thomas i'm hearing a lot about the debt ceiling in the united states mm. first of all what is the debt ceiling yeah so well it's much like it says this is the law that limits the amount of money that the U.S. government can borrow mm. to pay their pay their bills, okay. um, and we're we're bumping up against it pretty soon. So I'm like, was it thirty one trillion dollars or something? Like that? It's <laughs> an insane amount of money. Thirty one point four trillion. Who would have known dollars. that thirty one trillion wouldn't have been enough? <laughs> Not going to cover it. Certainly, when when whoever, whoever was writing that into the spreadsheet, probably would have been like, mm. this should be fine. I reckon. If we yeah. get to this point, we've got problems. Would, I mean, this this is a, this is the interesting thing about the debt ceiling is like. Like I've been, the first time I came across it was like 15 years ago and, I, mm. and it was this going to be this big issue and I'm like, whoa, this is epic. They're going to, US government's going to run out of money. Mm. Uh, and then they just got together and increased the ceiling. So right. it's just an arbitrary number that politicians have decided on. 
but because of the way debt's going that every year or so they've got to revisit it and go like, ah, it's not going to be enough. We need to, to bump mm. it up more. I mean, why it's interesting now is normally the government can agree to it and there's a bit of argy-bargy around it, but they finally, they increase the limit and it's all fine. Mm. Why I think people are interested now is the US political situation has become super polarized since Trump. And it's not clear that, you know, they're going to find a way through and we might, we might cross that threshold. Um, in which case the US government is effectively run, has just run out of money. Right. What happens if they run out of money? Like what are the practical uh, implications of that? Well, so there's two things. Like one, they can't, they can't pay to do stuff. Mm. So, you know, welfare payments, government agencies, government employees, um, weather services, which probably means that, you know, airline no traffic more. comes to a halt. Oh, right. I thought you meant no more weather. <laughs> no, <the> weather employees. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, right. so that, so that, and so like you think about that, that's, that's pretty epic. Like mm. that, all of that stuff is the social infrastructure of the biggest economy in the world. If that sort of freezes up, that creates massive, that creates a massive story. The other thing is that um, they can't pay their, pay their interest on their debts. So they can't roll over their debts, which means that they, you know, effectively become bankrupt which, you know, that then that causes the risk in treasuries to explode, that causes the you know, price of treasuries to collapse. Mm. And because treasuries are sort of used as a sort of like almost like a reserve currency around the world, a lot of central banks hold them as in, in reserves, mm. um, that creates massive, a massive story around the world, which is why everyone's watching it so closely. So it's not just, you know, like, you know, a small nation like Greece mm. going bankrupt, like this is, you know, the cornerstone of the global economy going on, going under. And it's in direct contradiction to Janet Yellen in our intro saying the US always pays its debts. If mm. they were to not be able to do that, then we not only would the US like crash, but mm. we would need a new intro. Right. <laughs> yeah. We've spent more than enough time talking about that <laughs> intro already. I really yeah. don't want to have to. Re- I don't want to have to revisit that. Um, I did yeah. see that there was. I I heard somewhere that markets can't price in the US like defaulting mm. on its debts. Like the market's yeah. just like we pretty much can't price the risk in. If mm. it happens, everything's going to crash and it's going to be like end of days, mm. but we kind of can't do anything about sort of preparing for it or doing anything because that's just yeah. a situation that we're just going to have to deal with if it happens. Has yeah. it ever happened before? Uh, no, no, it's never never defaulted before, not, no. not meaningfully, not, not because of the debt ceiling anyway. Yeah. Is it so, going to yeah, happen this time? Oh, who knows? I mean, this yeah, like I'm saying, it's, it's impossible to price because it mm. sort of comes down to politics. In 2011 was the last time that it got things got really dicey, and they they came up with a deal like two two hours before the deadline or something. Um, <laughs> but that that caused like a 16 percent drop in the S and P 500. Oh so wow! Just and that's that's with the them coming to an agreement. Mm. If they don't reach an agreement. Yeah, you know, like twenty Moody's reckons twenty percent. I reckon it's at least that much. Um, yeah, right. If it really gets lot, you know, gets they get stuck for a couple of weeks. Like, yeah, it's did it bounce chaos. back? Like once they once their loan got approved, did it bounce back? Eventually, quick? eventually, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, depends what your time horizon is, but yeah. Mm. I mean, definitely the market's higher now than it was in 2011, but yeah. But yeah, right. I mean, this is, this is a classic black swan event. So it's a black swan in the sense that it's incredibly rare, 
But mm. if it happens, it's incredibly powerful. Right. And, you know, markets can't, can't work with black swans because, mm. you, you, you know, you can't, put, put your, you can't position yourself for a 0.5% chance of total mm. economic meltdown. Like it's... Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Swans are notoriously difficult to work with in any case. Um, <laughs> can they, could they just print more money? Like so if I, go, if I was in debt and I had a money printing machine, I would print my way out of it so I could pay all my bills. We've printed money before. Does that, uh, break, does that break the economy? Uh, well, technically the way it works is it's debt. So the, the Fed prints mm. and then the government borrows from the Fed. Ah, uh, okay. Like technically, and that's why that's technically not an option, mm. I think. And the I'm Fed will sure. be like, sorry, you guys have got debts all over, all over the place. We're not lending to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it will be fascinating to see what happens with the debts. I think the conversation would be much more interesting if we just changed the word ceiling to roof and then we could all talk about Congress raising the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would be like, yeah, boy, <laughs> we're raising the roof. <laughs> yeah. Janet won't just be yelling, she'll be bumping and grinding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, why don't we take a break here. We'll grab a word from this week's sponsor and be back talking about the return of working from work. Back with more right after this. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. You are on Comedian versus Economist. If you'd like to send us an email, cve at equitymates.com or via the website, equitymates.com forward slash CVE, you'll also find us uh, making a fa- fairly uh, fairly minimal effort on Instagram and Facebook, it's fair to say, at CVE Podcast, but you can, you can get in touch with us there if you like. Uh, Thomas, apparently mm. workers are getting sick of taking Zoom calls in the kitchen. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. So a survey by the software firm Ivanti um, reckons that, yeah, a lot of workers are dissatisfied with remote working now. They, they reckon 40% just under 40%. Mm. So they're struggling with the downsides. Right. Um, yeah. Biggest, biggest drawback apparently is less time spend, spent with coworkers. Ah, and more time spent with kids is another big yeah. drawback. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, yeah. So like one in 10 apparently are blaming a work from home for mental health problems. It's getting, mm. getting pretty serious. Again, more time with kids will do that to you. Interestingly, work from home, the dissatisfaction with work from home was highest in the tech sector where 60% of people in that sector reckon they're not enjoying working remotely anymore. Right. And, and the thing is, I don't know if that's about kids, but they three quarters of them, three quarters of them have said their workloads had actually increased as a result of not being in the office. Mm, interesting. Mm. I mean, I, I have a I have an office job uh, working technology. Mm. Yeah, I definitely feel like my workload's been increasing. I don't know that I would have ever attributed that to working from home. Like, I think mm. that's just I don't know. That's just work. It feels like it's busier than ever. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely feel like I spend a lot more time working now that I'm working from home. Like, so I'm, I'm starting earlier and I'm finishing later just because I kind of can. Like you get the kids to school and then it's like, well, I might as well just start work. I'm home. Right, right, right. C- kind of probably less inclined to go and take a lunch break. Like, um, oh, okay. Yeah. All right, so you're working more. Yeah, working more. Yeah. But I don't well, know that well that's... Played. <laughs> Got out of supervision and just work more. Smart. Smart. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think it's just because it's that thing though. It's like I don't have a co-worker at home going, hey, let's go get lunch. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I see people walking out the door at lunchtime and go, oh, I might go, mm. I might go do that, I might go join mm. them. No one's kind of like, hey, you want to go grab a coffee? Because everyone I work with, you know, uh, they live long way away so mm. yeah sort of and I'm, I'm one day a week in the city usually okay but yeah, yeah so yeah. i can i i get that sentiment i get i i do miss the you know i'm a bit of a social butterfly thomas i do like mm. the uh i do like the interaction the social interaction of work yeah your water cooler conversation game strong <laughs> it's <laughs> mate, it turns, it turns that regular water into sparkling water that's how, <laughs> how good it is <laughs> So that's so that's from the employee side of things. What about mm. what about bosses? What do they make of it? Are they keen for it to happen? Elon is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think I think the general trend We've is got some birds kicking off in the yeah, back. That's another is. reason to get back to the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Less fauna. <laughs> yeah, the plovers are nesting at the moment. They're a bit noisy. Um, oh, yeah, no, I thought you said the plumbers. <laughs> the plumbers are nesting. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what they're doing at your place. They usually just come and fix the pipes here. <laughs> you can't um, get them out. <laughs> <laughs> got, a, got a couple of plumbers nesting in the spare room. <laughs> We're really hoping they breed this year. Can't, you can't get a tradie these days. We need more plumbers. Need more, We've yeah. started a breeding program in Thomas's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So the, the general trend seems to be everything I'm reading is that that yeah, more more businesses are calling their workers back. Amazon mm. this week, Amazon workers are going back three at least at least three days a week mm. uh, back in the office. Um, yeah, the CEO. Uh, Andy Jassy says that yeah, innovation is just not happening without people in the office. Saying so invention is often sloppy, it wanders and meanders and marinates. Serendipitous interactions help it, and there are more of those in person than virtually. Hmm. So yeah, so sort of like just that that teamwork vibe that happens with people bumping into each other. 
Yeah, but the other thing that it was interesting that, that PwC and Deloitte in UK, those accounting firms over there, they've started giving extra training to younger staff who haven't been in the office because they realised that they haven't developed skills with like speaking during meetings and working in teams. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so they've had to give them extra training. Where, where to find the first aid kit, all that sort of stuff, who the fire mm. wardens are. I, always, mm. I never knew what happened to fire wardens during COVID when everyone went working from home because we used to have oh. these little markers around the office that told you where the fire wardens sat and then you go in the office now and it's like a ghost <laughs> town. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I just hope there's, no, hope there's not a fire. Um, so what does, this, what does this mean for markets then? Do we just we go long office works? Is that the... Uh, I mean, I think the, the, big, the big risk in markets, one of the big risks in markets is around commercial real estate because mm. the office commercial sector has been hammered. There's a lot of it, um, banks and super funds have exposure to commercial property. Mm. So that's, that's been flagged as a bit of a you know, risk area. Um, so if this starts to turn around, I mean, I think you know, corporate footprints are still smaller than they were because we still have a lot of hybrid but if the, the trend seems to be moving in the other direction now, um, link, LinkedIn re- reckon that, um, that the number of remote jobs openings on LinkedIn have fallen for 11 straight road and months in a row. Right. Yeah. And now just, just one in 10 openings offers fully remote work com- compared with one in six a year ago. Yeah. Wow. So that seems to be shifting. Is there a chance of a conspiracy theory at play here, which is that there's all these articles and, you know, this suggestion coming out from these big institutions heavily invested in commercial real estate are just like, mm. you know what we need to do? <laughs> we need to start telling people that they're missing the office. We need to start convincing them <laughs> and planting the seed that life was better in the office because mm. I know there'll be some people listening out there who will just be like, I love working from home. I can't imagine why anyone would want to go back. Mm. There, I think we should always keep that in the back of our minds that potentially this is all paid content by someone who's trying to get who's long commercial real estate. Yeah, possibly, possibly. I think I think the vaccine, the microchips that were in the vaccines also work better <laughs> off office Wi-Fi. <laughs> right, Thomas. Finally on the show, Stephen uh, sent us an email: cve at equitymates.com. Stephen uh, was listening to our episode last week where we were talking about the nationalisation of lithium in Chile uh, and how that would be a good thing for in, for Australia, for our assets nationalising the mining uh, sector. And Stephen said, Thomas, that he nearly fell off his chair uh, with some of the comments that we were making, specifically you, I'd suggest. Um, <laughs> Uh, Chile's a basket case has flip-flopped from too far dictatorial and now too far left and socialist, which has ultimately hijacked their long-term growth. Uh, He's calling for us to stay in the centre in Australia. Uh, He said the only way you reduce inflation is to let business flourish and increase supply. He finished off, Thomas, by saying that all the tree-hugging do-gooders are championing the same thing here but are sorely miseducated. Please don't add fuel to their fire. Thomas, you're a tree-hugging (laughs) do-gooder. What do you make of Stephen's comments? Uh, I am a tree-hugging do-gooder. That's that's probably (laughs) people need to keep that in mind with or, you know, that's the context for all my commentary. Some of it's, yeah, like Stephen's obviously very smart because he listens to us, but Mm. uh, like I disagree with some of his points there. Fair enough. Like I think like Chile is a particularly interesting example. You know, they had Pinochet who's the dictator who, you know, 
kind of wrecked the country. Well, he did a lot of damage. Tens of thousands of people were killed or disappeared, including mm. Pablo Neruda, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. So I'm still a bit annoyed about that. Let's not focus too much on the loss of the one poet. poetic loss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but but they had so they were, they had a left left leaning government of Allende. Um, one of the things they wanted to do was uh, nationalise the copper industry. So the last mm. time Chile looked at this, they wanted to do that. The copper industries, the companies weren't happy with that. They went to the CIA in America. The CIA funded. Uh, a military coup or help support it and installed a, a dictator who killed lots of people. Mm. So it is true that nationalization and socialism can cause uh, basket case economies, but often it's because of bombs coming from places like America. Right. And Cuba's, a, Cuba's the other example people talk to as being the failed experiment. There's been a US naval blockade off the coast of Cuba for, you know, generations. If that was happening in Australia, we'd be an economic basket case as well. I don't know. So the point, like you often, this is here, you hear this, I, I, I hear this a bit that, you know, socialism always fails. It's like, yeah, like because it's competing with capitalism and capitalism often smashes any socialist flourishes mm. that sort of happen. And the other thing is you got to, I think you've got to, you got to discern between capitalism, socialism and economic systems and then the government systems that go with them. So it's fascism and totalitarianism versus a democracy. So like, a, you know, the Russian example, you know, with, with Stalin, you're mixing socialism with fascism, with totalitarian control. That gives you some bad outcomes. But is it the socialism or is it the totalitarianism? Mm. Does that make sense? So no. I think you, you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it will to a lot of people who are interested out there. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sit this one out, listeners. By the way. <laughs> I feel like Stephen hasn't taken any offence to anything I've said. In fact, he started his email by saying he loves the show, finds it insightful and funny. I'm taking that as a win. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so like at the extremes, it's not, I don't think it's as bad as it's often presented, you know, as an, as an economic system, totally not down with fascism and totalitarianism, mm. totally not a fan of that. But, you know, the, the extreme of socialism, and I'm not, you know, that's not where my economics goes, but it's also there's an agenda there to paint it as the great evil since right. McCarthyism in America, for, you know, since the 60s, and that's still with us, you know, mm. 60 years on. We live in hybrid economies. So, you know, does the idea of, make, of own, this, the government owning hospitals make make you a socialist? If you support the government owning hospitals, is that a socialist idea? We mm. could have free market hospitals but we tend to think that's not a good idea and I, you know, I personally agree with that and so there's a lot of middle ground between you know full extreme free market capitalism and mm. full extreme socialism and we live there and we always want to talk about the balance but what happens is when you want to th want to shift the balance a, a little bit you get accused of wanting to embody the polar extreme even right. if that's not what you're talking about and so what I was sort of saying last week was, you know, like I think there's a case for not nationalizing the entire resource sector, but like energy companies in particular, because energy companies are doing a number on us, in my view. Like the interesting thing last week was like you look at gas prices. And we talked about this, we talked about this a few times because we don't have a domestic gas reservation, which means that we pay global prices for Australian gas. It's set by the global market because we, we don't, well, for the East Coast, West Australia has a, has a gas reservation and they have cheap gas. On the East Coast, we, we pay global prices. Mm. And on Wednesday, East Coast gas prices were selling at $18, $18 a gigajoule. All right, that's $6 above the so-called price cap that we had that the government was 
saying was a good thing, which was which is still, and it's like uh, three or four times higher than what they were pre-COVID. Mm. So it's super high, like really high prices, $18 a gigajoule. The same gas is selling in Asia at $14 a gigajoule. In Europe, at $17 a gigajoule. And in America, at $3 a gigajoule. So East Coast gas is the most expensive gas in the world last week on Wednesday, even though we're producing it and we have a, have a mega abundance of it. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Like when you think about that as a product, it, like if we, if we made anything else here and we consume it, as, like you, I can only relate it to online shopping and buying something off Amazon or eBay or something. If mm-hmm. I don't have to pay shipping or pay for transport costs or anything coming mm. from another country is always just a bit more expensive. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, I can kind of get that makes that's the bit that makes sense to me. It's like how mm. could it possibly be more expensive to, mm. to make something here? Um, yeah. and buy it here. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a joke. And at those prices, if they're sustained, one mm. analyst I've seen says that that adds, that's another price shock of 50% on top of like 50% we've already had. That yeah. adds another 3% to CPI. Mm. And that keeps interest rates higher, which we as Aussies pay for. And you talk mm. about businesses, like these are multinational companies and not even Aussie businesses. The Aussie businesses are the ones struggling with high electricity prices right now. So yeah. if you want to support Aussie businesses and if that's your own agenda, then, you know, bring, bring the gas companies into line and make them pay because they're all, they're all foreign owned mm. you know, make them support Aussie, Aussie, um, Aussie companies. And it's a bit of a joke that we don't do this. Like a lot of, you know, I forget who was talking about it. Maybe it was even Kevin Rudd or something, but saying like when he goes to international conferences, people look at Australia and just go, why don't you guys have a domestic energy reservation? Yeah. It's crazy. You have this natural advantage and you just let multinational companies ship it offshore, offshore and sell it to, well, like China. So 71% of Aussie gas goes to China. Mm. China is apparently the reason we're spending $10 billion building nuclear submarines. Like we're, letting, <laughs> we're letting multinational companies export our gas to China, our yeah. supposedly a strategic rival, while we pay global prices and our inflation's higher and our interest rates are higher. It's a ridiculous situation. But we're building the submarines locally, Thomas. Yeah. We're creating jobs. <laughs> Great jobs. <laughs> jobs and growth. Jobs. <laughs> uh, uh, well, there you go. Well, thank, thank you, Stephen, for sending your email in. It was really, uh, yeah, it's, a really, it's, a, it's always good to get a, a count of you and, and to hear your opinions. So really appreciate that. And, yeah, Thomas, always good to get your thoughts as well. So um, feel free to send us an email if you would like to, cve at equitymates.com, as I said, uh, or via the website equitymates.com forward slash cve. But that is all for us for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we look forward to your company next time. But for us, it is bye for now. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 54069. Seven.